Join host Michael G. Cartwright for searching conversations with UND faculty and staff about our common future. On June 19, 1865, word reached the community in Texas that they were free. The following year, these former slaves gathered at the AME Church in Galveston to celebrate the good news of freedom. That occasion became known as Juneteenth. This past June 19th, the president, cabinet, and provost council challenged the campus to live into a new sense of responsibility. Our campus will continue to explore all that this might yet mean, but already we know that it entails being honest with ourselves. On June 19, 2021, the University of Indianapolis will celebrate Juneteenth. In the meantime, each month, our colleague Michael will talk with members of the UND community. Join us, Juneteenth Conversations. We look forward to sharing with you there. Hello, I'm Michael Cartwright, host of the Juneteenth Conversation podcast at the University of Indianapolis. This is our 10th time to have guests join me for searching conversations about our common future as a university where we are cultivating the spirit of inclusive kindness. Today, we're talking about Annette Gordon-Reed's remarkable little book on Juneteenth. In this episode, we will be discussing the first two chapters in relation to some features of the history of Blacks and Indigenous people of color in Indiana and the University of Indianapolis. Annette Gordon-Reed reminds readers that however dramatic the announcement of the end of slavery was, it did not actually terminate the institution. That only happened in December 1865 when the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was ratified. Even so, the Juneteenth Proclamation is part of the heritage with which she grew up in Texas. I've asked my colleagues, Jolanda Bean and Angie Presnell, to read some of the text today. And um, I'm curious, Angie, Jolanda, have either of you ever been to the Gulf Coast of Texas? where the island port of Galveston is located. I haven't, but I certainly would like to go sometime. Um, I have actually been, but I really did not realize that. I left probably 20 years ago to go on my first cruise out of Galveston, Texas um, oh, to Mexico. Um, <laughs> but I did not realize how historic it was when I went. Yeah, Angie? I have uh, not been down to the Gulf Coast uh, out of Galveston. I've been to Texas many times, but have not made it quite that far south. I would, I would like to do that sometime. As Annette Gordon-Reed explains, the city of Galveston was the site of a devastating hurricane in 1909. But for our purposes today, Galveston has a greater significance as the site of the delivery of General Orders Number no. 3, better known as the Juneteenth Emancipation Proclamation on June 19th, 1865. Angie, would you read that proclamation for us? Yes. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them become that between an employer and hired labor. The freedmen are advised to remain on their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and, they, and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. 
Now, the person associated with those words was Colonel Granger, an officer in the U.S. Army. Some representations of this announcement depict Granger riding into town on a horse, and others describe it as the distribution of a telegram. However, it happened, I can imagine that it would have had a dramatic effect. This kind of news would have shaken things up quite a lot for people who suddenly find themselves in new roles as former slaves and former slave masters. It must have been very disorienting to hear an official of the U.S. government tell you that you are to remain where you are and hire yourself out when there may or may not have been a market for your skills or a need for your strengths. And of course, we know what happened during the last year of the Civil War in Southeast Georgia. After burning his way uh, from Atlanta across the state, General uh, Sherman took property from whites and gave it to blacks. This is the origin of that proverbial 40 acres and a mule definition of freedom with which uh, African-Americans have had to contend ever since. Annette Gordon-Reed writes about how she processed these matters as a child, a youth, and an adult. Angie and Jolanda, tell me, about when did the two of you first learn about the Juneteenth Proclamation of 1865? I suspect it was much later than was the case for Annette Gordon-Reed, am I correct? Yes, uh, certainly. I did not learn about it until um, that would be last year, 2020, prior to June 17th of 2020. Um, that's kind of embarrassing, but unfortunately, that's when I learned about it. I think growing up um, as an African-American in Detroit, it's something that I always knew. It was just part of Black history that you knew that the rest of the nation didn't know or understand. So um, my family, we didn't celebrate it, like have barbecues or anything, but we have museums and we will go to the Juneteenth celebration at the museum um, and learn about that there. Um, but it was once again, it's one of those holidays that it's primarily African-Americans with the knowledge celebrate. And it just is what it is. <laughs> Thank you. As for me, it was sometime in my 20s, probably in college in the late 1970s or seminary in the early 1980s. I remember reading uh, Ralph Ellison's book, Juneteenth. I remember reading Margaret Walker's book, Jubilee. But I know that I didn't begin to grasp the significance of such a moment in American history until I taught a course at Allegheny College on the topic of black religion and black radicalism in the 1990s. As I read on Juneteenth, I kept thinking to myself, what would it mean for us to confront the history that has constituted the way things are in Indiana? I've been trying to imagine the kinds of public engagements that are appropriate for the university in light of Juneteenth. Within the past year, we've had public services in which we have heard the cries of anger and lamentation of African-American students. What we have not had to date, to my knowledge, are services of remembrance, repentance, lamentation, and thanksgiving that involve those of us who are white. But I think that could happen in the weeks and months to come as we continue to register the implications of Black Lives Matter. 
That is one of the reasons why I'm inviting the persons who signed Juneteenth statement last year to take some time to read Annette Gordon's little book of six essays on Juneteenth. Gordon Reed won a Pulitzer Prize for her study of the relationship between Thomas Jefferson, Hallie, Sally Hemings, and their progeny. In this more recent book, Gordon Reed reflects on her own relationship as a native Texan to the proclamation of Juneteenth. Jolanda, would you please read the first passage from her book? The choice for slavery was deliberate, and that reality is hard to square with a desire to present a pristine and heroic origin story about the settlement of Texas. There is no way to do that without suggesting that the lives of African-Americans and their descendants in Texas did not and do not matter. I think someone would have to be oblivious and uncaring not to hear the echoes of the Black Lives Matter protest of the past year in Minnesota and elsewhere in the wake of the death of George Floyd. And that could easily overwhelm us all. I appreciate that Annette Gordon-Reed actually offers another option for us. She tells the story of what it was like for her as a little girl learning about the history of her state. And she invites us to consider our own experience with the legacies of racism and slavery in the places where we live and work. This strikes me as very helpful for those of us who are not black and or who do not come from Texas. Consider the following passage. My teachers were not inclined to deal with all of this and lightly did not know much of the story. These aspects of our state history was never fully discussed. When slavery in Texas was mentioned, it was presented as an unfortunate event that was to be acknowledged, but quickly passed over. There is no sense of institution centrality. Slavery was done. There was no point in derailing on the past. Jolanda, I'm curious, did you grow up hearing stories about the Underground Railroad? Did you ever drive down to Cincinnati to visit the Underground Railroad Museum? Uh, absolutely. Um, I definitely grew up learning about the Underground Railroad, learning about all of the heroic men and women and children who, you know, it's just amazing just to, when you just drive, just to see how far they went to run to get away from slavery. And actually, um, in 2005, I actually went to the amazing um, Cincinnati Museum, and I think it first opened probably in 2004. So getting the opportunity to visit that um, in 2005 was amazing. And just realizing how close Ohio and Kentucky is, and then just crossing that line, um, it's, it brings you a really great perspective. And I was in another, and if you think about that with Indiana too, how close just crossing that Ohio River for freedom is just, that's all you have to do just to get there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jolanda. Another aspect of Annette Gordon-Reed's book that I enjoyed was her effort to tell the story of those who settled in Texas as early as the 1820s, well before statehood. This is one of those aspects that can be so bedeviling once you start to realize that we don't know what we don't know about African-American history. 
This past fall, I ran across a remarkable book by Annalisa Cox. The title is The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. It's about the 338 African-American settlements that historians know were founded in the area of the old Northwest Territory, Northwest being Northwest of the Ohio River. She tells the story of the lives of Charles and Keziah Greer, who established a farmstead in Gibson County, Indiana in the 1830s. I found this book to be fascinating read, one that is nicely paired with On Juneteenth. There is actually a website administered by the Indiana Historical Bureau where you can go and click on the name of the county where you live, and you can quickly access information about where these black settlements were located. In Brown County, Indiana, it's possible to go to the local history center and identify the names of the two black men who owned property in Nashville, Indiana in the 1850s. The reason is because according to the rules set up in the territories, voting rights were based on land ownership. So there was a time when blacks were citizens of the territory of Indiana. We also know that the state legislature enacted laws that were intended to discourage free blacks from settling in the state. At one point in the year 1831, a law was passed that required African-Americans to post a $500 bond to ensure they would not be a burden on the cities and towns where they lived. So much for who's your hospitality. By the way, that law was encoded in the 1851 Constitution of the state of Indiana. Meanwhile, Congress found itself getting bogged down because white and African-American abolitionists petitioned their state and federal politicians. According to Annalisa Cox, these petitions grew so numerous that the discussions of slavery, freedom, and equality dominated Congress by 1835. Around the same time, Congress enacted a gag bill, the effect of which was to table these petitions indefinitely. This took place with a majority of the vote from both the Southern and Northern politicians. Its advocates were pragmatic. This was a way for preventing the United States from breaking apart over the sectional conflict. Its critics asked how far such pragmatists would go to keep the nation together what kind of nation would be left. So there was no real accountability for this. In Texas, white supremacy was written to the documents, but in Indiana, it was less straightforward. Strategies of evasion kept whites in the position of controlling the process, even if the tools for resistance were there to use in the earliest documents. Angie, what were you taught about these matters? Did you know, for example, that there were African-Americans who settled the communities where you lived in the 18th and 19th centuries? I was not uh, taught that. I don't recall any of those teachings uh, when I was growing up in school. Thanks, Angie. Annette Gordon-Reed recalls that her teachers followed the lead of the state's larger mythology when it came to teaching about slavery. On the one hand, Texans were focused on the future about what came next. The, state, the space program headquarters in Houston that was sending moon, men to the moon, et cetera. But there was also a sense in which Texans dwelt on the past. 
For example, that ever-present admonition to remember the Alamo. Annette Gordon-Reed does a great job of disentangling the threads of triumph and tragedy. She sees this as a good thing in the context of our national history and thinks that this same process could do wonders for Texas as well. The county in which she grew up was known for being harsh in its treatment of black people. She talks about the counter narratives that she heard from relatives as she grew up. For example, after the murder of a black citizen of Conroe, one of her great great aunts vowed to never spend the night in Conroe again. We can imagine the effect that this had on little Annette to hear someone she loves talk about the town in which she has grown up as a place that was unsafe for Blacks. As a historian, Annette Gordon-Reed knows that bringing these counter-narratives to light is a central task for those who take on the challenge of writing history. Part of Annette Gordon-Reed's personal history is that she was the one child in her family who attended the integrated Anderson Elementary School. In fact, her whole educational experience was in desegregated institutions but her siblings went to the all black school. The same aunt who told her the truth about Conroe also bought her boxes and boxes of new clothes so that she could be dressed to the nines when she went to Anderson School. Her aunt saw this as her contribution to the civil rights movement. Meanwhile, as a young child, Annette Gordon-Reed recalls feeling puzzled about being told not to go into a particular store that was located near the border between her neighborhood and a white neighborhood. The store's owner was extremely hostile to black people. She knew that she had done nothing to provoke the owner. Not surprisingly, she doesn't share the nostalgia that many white Texans feel for the old style small town general store in Conroe. Going to an integrated school like Anderson Elementary gave Annette Gordon-Reed advantages, but she now knows that it also came with burdens for many people. She offers perceptive remarks about the cost of such changes. Jolanda, would you read that part? Many of the teachers in the Black schools well, saw themselves as on a mission. Education was about the individual student. Becoming educated, was an act of resistance. The classroom was a site of resistance. Along with ministers, many of them saw radical uplift as part of their task. School teachers were among the most respected members of the black community, unquote. The teachers of Anderson Elementary did not have to concern themselves with that. Nick Gordon-Reed calls attention to something that has been overlooked in the discussions of the effects of integration on children, black and white alike, namely the negative impact on black teachers. Jolanda, would you continue? Many of the black teachers who were in the black schools when the changes initially came were taken out of the classroom. The children were to be integrated, not the teaching staff. Annette Gordon-Reed's mother was one of those exceptions. She moved to Corrin High School to teach 10th grade English. With that move, she lost the daily companionship of a full conrad of Black teachers, mainly female, with whom she had much in common. 
It would be many years before she found true equilibrium with her new colleagues, none of whom were used to dealing with Black people as equals. In my own experience, the first time I had contact with African-American teachers was in my junior year of high school, and that was more in advisory capacity than in the classroom as such. What about the two of you, Jolanda and Angie, and what ways did the integration of public schools in the United States impact your own educations? I remember it was my fifth grade year when um, the schools in Indianapolis, at least the township I was in, Warren Township, um, did a desegregation. And so um, students were what they called bust in. And um, that year, my teacher was a um, black teacher. And um, I, she's one of my favorite teachers ever. Um, and some of my best friends were um, some of the students that were bust in. Um, for me, it was great um, because it gave, um, it gave the school um, some differences and different cultures and things like that. Whereas prior to that, it was uh, strictly just white. I think my experience is a little different. I went to private school all my life until going into college. Um, however, in my little private schools, I was primarily, for the most part, probably the only Black student in my, in my class or maybe a one or two until I got to high school. Um, and I really didn't have a Black teacher besides um, when I was in daycare until really high school. And she was our gym teacher, uh, which Miss Amazing, Miss Green. So even though my schools were slightly integrated, I think it was a little bit different because they were private schools um, in a different area. Nick Gordon-Reed briefly talks about what it was like for her to go back home. The town is very different in the year 2021 than it was when she was a student in her childhood. Jolanda, please read. The schools are integrated with Hispanic students. In downtown Corin, on the wall hat, used to have an old advertisement for soda. I thought, clever, it's a mural of me and in a nearby park, a bust. It would be almost impossible to convey to children who live there now how different their Koran is from the one I knew. Jolanda and Angie, I suppose we could all tell stories about how different life is now from when we were as children. I know my own hometown does not have a bust of me in one of its parks. What the cities and towns we live in do have are rafts of unspoken counter-narratives that we and our neighbors need to explore. These are difficult conversations to have, and yet there are sources for engaging this history. And I think we need to take the time and trouble to do so. For example, I was recently talking with a man I know who was born in 1945. Although he now lives in Brown County, Indiana, he grew up in University Heights neighborhood, just a free, few streets south of the university. His family was part of the congregation across the street. He told me that his grandfather, who was not a resident of University Heights, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. 
this was unusual for folks who were members of the United Brethren Church. There were fewer German Americans who were part of the KKK, and the earliest generation of United Brethren were dom predominantly German. But we also know that the demography of the United Brethren Church changed during the first couple of decades in the 20th century. And so the shadow of Jim Crow racism is also intertwined with the history of the city of Indianapolis. Now, I mentioned that with full recognition that the fact that there is a single person that we can name who was part of the KKK does not give us a full account of the history, but it is one of those indicators that there's so much more to explore than we've explored thus far. Delanda and Angie, Indiana history is strikingly different from the history of the state of Texas in several respects. As one of the northern states, there was never a proclamation in Indiana, like the one we associate with Juneteenth. Slavery was not legal, but it was tolerated. By constitution, only white men could vote. Negroes were prohibited from giving testimony against a white man in a court of law. Intermarriages between white persons and Negroes were forbidden under extreme penalties. And in 1850, the Indiana Supreme Court ruled that Negro students could not attend public schools, even if they paid their own tuition. We Hoosiers like to think that we're famous for our hospitality, but our history shows that folks from Indiana have shown inhospitality to Blacks at many points in the past two centuries. Indeed, as historian Emily Thornborough has observed, with respect to the earliest decades of Indiana history, whites tried to shut Blacks out at virtually every turn. Angie, would you read from uh, Emily Thornborough's book, please? It has frequently been said that Indianans were more tolerant of slavery and less aroused by the anti-slavery movement than were people in most Northern states. It is probably more accurate to describe the dominant attitude in Indiana as neither pro-slavery nor anti-slavery, but as anti-Negro. There were few persons who wanted to see slavery introduced into the state, but there was widespread and intense race prejudice and fear of the competition of Negro labor due in part to the fact that a large part of the population of Indiana came from the non-slaveholding class of Southern whites. The result was a prescriptive code designed to keep the small Negro population in an inferior position and to prevent the settlement of Negroes from the slave states. The severity of the black laws, which were copies in large part from the code of Southern states was remarkable in view of the small size of the Negro population, which at no time before the Civil War constituted more than 1% of the total population. Thank you, Angie. In recent weeks, I've had occasion to ponder Professor Thornborough's judgment on several occasions. I do not doubt that she is correct when she says, that the dominant attitude in Indiana in the 19th century was neither pro-slavery nor anti-slavery, but as anti-Negro. And we know that racial prejudice continues to be part of the culture of Indiana. 
where the city of Indianapolis is the 15th most segregated city in the country. Now it's true that we are also uh, about the 15th largest city in the country, but there are cities that are smaller than we are that are less segregated and there are cities that are larger than we are that are less segregated. There is something else I think we need to learn from Indiana historian Emmerlou Thornburg. Angie, would you read that part, please? While the extreme manifestations of racism in the laws of Indiana reflected prevailing prejudices, they do not give a complete picture. There was a minority who opposed the black laws and worked actively for their repeal and also tried in other ways to improve the condition of the Negro population. Most conspicuous among this group were the Quakers, especially in the Eastern counties of Wayne, Randolph, and Henry. Many of them had come to Indiana from the South, especially North Carolina, because of their opposition to slavery. Many Christians in Indiana, as well as throughout the US, who found it difficult to reconcile slavery with Christian teachings, were attracted to the project of setting up one or more colonies in Africa to which blacks could be sent. The work of the American Colonization Society appealed to people from Indiana because on the one hand, the US could get rid of a population that was regarded as undesirable. And at the same time, these emancipated Negroes from America could carry the Christian gospel to the people of Africa, or at least that's what these folks thought. The Indiana chapter of the American Colonization Society was organized initially in 1829. As Professor Thornburg explained in her book about Indiana, during the Civil War period, the Indiana Colonization Society languished after only a few years and became inactive in 1838 before being revived in 1845. Many politicians embraced colonization as the solution to the problem of slavery and race relations, perhaps because this enabled them to occupy a position in which they simultaneously expressed their abhorrence to slavery and their belief in white supremacy. Almost every session of the Indiana legislature passed a resolution in favor of colonization. The Constitutional Convention of 1850 to 51 included in the article excluding Negroes from the state, a provision that fines collected for violations of the article should be used to colonize Negroes already resident in Indiana. I wonder what children learn in their fourth grade Indiana history classes these days. My wife and I used to laugh about the fact that all four of our children learned that a tree grows out of the roof of the county courthouse in Greensburg, Indiana. Surely students and teachers learn more than that in the 21st century. Meanwhile, I think of Floribel Wilson, the first black to be a member of the university's faculty, who in her retirement years in the 1980s and 90s, volunteered to go into the uh, elementary schools around central Indiana to tell stories about black settlers, the Underground Railroad, and the abolitionist cause. Mrs. Wilson was committed to do all that she could to ensure that the children of Indiana grew up learning to tell the whole story about slavery, the Underground Railroad, and the efforts to abolish the institution of slavery. 
And I'm glad to say that in 2021 at the University of Indianapolis, we are beginning to recover the story of Florabelle Wilson, whose mantra was, let's tell the whole story, children. Here are some facts of the matter that I fear most Hoosiers don't know about our state's early history through the end of the 19th century. Let's begin with the fact that the original Northwest Ordinance specified that slavery was prohibited in the area that now comprises the states of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and many, uh, Minnesota. In some sense, this is almost the opposite of the Texas situation that Annette Gordon-Reed had to come to grips with as a child. I could be wrong, but I think that most Hoosiers don't know this or certainly don't think about it anymore than we consider what it says about our history that after 1831, free Blacks had to post a $500 bond in order to live in the state of Indiana. Second, in Indiana, the burden of proof was always upon Blacks to show that they were free. Fugitive slaves were in the position of having to prove that they had been emancipated. Otherwise, slave hunters could claim them and take them back to the South, even if they had never been enslaved. In some, if you were Black and living in Indiana in the mid 19th century, you could not be a citizen and you had almost no legal standing or protections. Third, the Dred Scott case of 1857, which famously defined African-Americans as three-fifths of a person, also nullified the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which had limited the growth of slavery. Once the Supreme Court ruled in this case, it is hard to see how advocates of anti-slavery could make any progress in the legal system. Abolitionism became extra legal in that technical sense in multiple respects during the years before the Civil War began. But as we also know, figures like John Brown were determined to take action and end slavery regardless of the consequences. I suspect that children in Indiana hear stories about John Brown and Harper's Ferry along with the dramatic stories of Harriet Tubman rescuing slaves via the Underground Railroad. Fourth, the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling by the Supreme Court of the United States upheld the contention by whites that the doctrine of separate but equal treatment of African-Americans in allocations of space, such as railroad card seating, was sufficient to meet the standards of the 14th Amendment. It is hard for me to fathom that something that took place 125 years ago this year is still being worked through in the cities and communities of this country. After the dedicated efforts of Charles Houston, Polly Murray, Thurgood Marshall, and others associated with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People's Legal Defense Fund, that legal judgment was overthrown in 1954 by a unanimous ruling of the US Supreme Court that we know as Brown versus Board of Education. But while the decision was clear, 
the response to it has been anything but compliant. The second and third episodes of Juneteenth Conversations were dedicated to the topic of white flight. In those episodes, my colleague John Kirkendall and I described the ways our lives were shaped in part by the desegregation of schools in the state of Arkansas. Here in Indiana, of course, we know that the 1981 desegregation order by Judge Hugh Dillon ended less than a decade ago. That is, it ended a time that Angie and I had children in public schools. While not, well, um, none of us were subject to that order, we know people whose lives were dramatically affected by the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Carolyn Coleman is one of UND's trustees. She grew up in Topeka, Kansas. And 10 years ago, she spoke at one of our Martin Luther King Jr. Day events, testifying to what the Brown versus Board of Education really meant to her generation of young African-Americans as she grew up in the public, as she went to public schools. Uh, Carolyn Coleman is about the same age as Annette Gordon-Reed. I'm curious, Angie and Jolanda, have either of you gone to schools that were operating with court-ordered busing of students at some point along the way? As I mentioned earlier, I uh, was um, in school where they um, went by the court-ordered busing. Um, students were brought in when I was in the fifth grade and um, that impacted me in a positive way. I'm sure that was a negative um, impact on the students to some degree. Um, but, and then my, my youngest son graduated um, school in 2016. And that, that was the last year that um, students were um, in the school system he was in um, because of the ordered best, the court ordered busing of students. And I was not part of court order busing. Uh, once again, my mother um, attended um, public schools and it was actually, um, they, it was integrated in her area and they segregated her. So she said, my daughter is never going to the Detroit public school. So that is the reason why I went to um, Paroco school until I graduated. So if I understand, Jolanda, in your case, your mother, who's African-American, chose to send you to a private school in order to protect you from the segregation that was created inside a technically integrated school. Is that right? Um, it was a little bit. So it was integrated first, um, but then they separated her. So it's opposite. <laughs> right. Right. because of where she lived um, and she was just like never again and so um, she's like we're not doing that <laughs> I'm just going to put you into a private school right that's uh one of many examples of the kind of uh, ad hoc tactics that African Americans have had to develop to deal with pervasive forces of segregation and racism in American culture well, we've reached the end of today's conversation. I wanna thank my guests, uh, colleagues, Joanda Bean and Angela, Angela Presnell for joining me in this first discussion of, of uh, Nett Gordon-Reed's book uh, on Juneteenth. In our next episode of Juneteenth Conversations, 
we will discuss the third and fourth chapters of her book, which deal with the power of origin stories for how we think of who we are, as well as the roles played by race and national identity in the way that we remember people of the past and present. I hope some of our UND's faculty and staff colleagues are reading the book with us. In the meantime, I hope you, our listeners, are continuing to practice your Juneteenth imaginations in hopeful ways. But for now, goodbye.